Nathaniel Hawthorne writes the beginning of his 1843 short story, The Birthmark, quote, In the latter part of the last century, there lived a man of science, an eminent proficient in every branch of natural philosophy, who not long before our story opens, had made experience of a spiritual affinity more attractive than any chemical one, close quote. That is, he married a beautiful woman. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is the After Dinner Scholar Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. The scientist, actually more of an alchemist, gazed at his beautiful wife one day after they were married and remarked, Georgiana, has it never occurred to you that the mark upon your cheek might be removed? You see, she was beautiful, very beautiful, but not perfect. And the birthmark on her cheek became his and then her obsession. Surely, science and technology could make Georgiana perfect. Dr. Virginia Arbery spoke to the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought about the birthmark as we considered the ancient and modern challenges of technology. Afterwards, she and I had this conversation. Tell us about Nathaniel Hawthorne. Who was he and why is he important as we study American literature? Mm. Hawthorne is a, a staple, at least he used to be, in American literature courses both in high school and college with his great book, The Scarlet Letter, that story of a marked woman who is accused of adultery, but who then redeems actually the whole community by her being a kind of angel of mercy as she wears the letter A for adultery on her chest for years. Um, he's fascinated with that kind of story of redemption after great transgression in the mid-19th century, early 19th century, as a friend of Melville's, uh, an intimate literary, literary friend of Melville's, um, Hawthorne was uh, said to be the Dante of our literati at the time. And the series of letters between them and a beautiful essay by Melville called Mosses and Hawthorne uh, pointed out his contribution to American letters uh, in a way that nobody had before. So um, Hawthorne, as a descendant in the New England uh, legacy of Puritans who had persecuted the Quakers and uh, so-called witches at Salem, uh, in his stories is working out that legacy what, what does it mean to be marked in the way that uh, certain old women were? Uh, what, what does it mean to be um, in a legacy of those who persecuted others, Christians, but with a different interpretation? So he works out these things in, in many of his stories. And so that's one set of his stories, Young Goodman Brown, very famous one, The Maypole, another famous one. Around the same time, he's also thinking about uh, how science is thinking of itself as a kind of savior, both of the material imperfections in nature and in the secrets to, to life, a kind of a remedy for all things wrong. And 
he was very critical um, in his short stories of this inclination on the part of scientists taking to heart uh, what Dante writes about himself in Canto 26 of Inferno, the canto dealing with Ulysses. And Dante says, in thinking about Purgatorio, I curb my talent so it not go where virtue does not lead. So Hawthorne is looking at the scientist who doesn't curb his talent and isn't led by virtue in his scientific investigations. And the birthmark, along with Rappaccini's daughter, written around the same time, um, deal with this question of the limits of one's scientific aptitude. All right, in the story, The Birthmark, Georgiana's husband, um, Aylmer, mm -hmm. uh, is a science, sort of. Mm -hmm. I mean, his laboratory includes things like the elixir of immortality, mm -hmm. which is a nice thing to have on the shelf, you know, in case you need it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about his science. Yeah. Well, he, it's interesting, he's um, a reader of the same books that the young Frankenstein read in his studies in uh, in Germany. He's in, in the book in the book Frankenstein. In the book not Frankenstein. Not in the movie Young Frankenstein. No, not in the <laughs> sorry. Forget about that whole film legacy, yes. So the young Frankenstein reads the, the in in Mary Shelley's work, the, the same works that Elmer, who, whose name means renowned or noble, reads Agrippa, Paracelsus, Albertus Magnus, Cornelius. Right? And these men are the, what, the grandfathers of the alchemists who tried to find in raw, impure metals gold. You know, and that inclination to, to solve the imperfections of nature is um, somehow for the young Elmer uh, represented in his effort to perfect what is imperfect in his otherwise beautiful wife's face, Georgiana. Um, it's an imperfection of, uh, one could call it almost a freckle, as his uh, assistant, his lab assistant, Abinamad, calls it. So it's the size of two tips of two little fingers in the shape of a hand that manifests itself uh, on her white cheek, then disappears when she blushes. And to many, especially to other men, <laughs> it's, uh, it's more like a beauty mark. It, it enhances her perfection. But after he marries her and apparently feels an arrows for her, similar to his arrows for science, he begins to obsess, as they say, over it. And he becomes, in his own words, uh, tyrannized by the idea of getting rid of it. And this, of course, uh, makes both her life and his life less than a marriage and more like a ongoing experiment. She becomes, shall we say, repulsed by his repulsion upon looking at her and attempts then to 
find a way to remove it that will be compatible with her sensibilities. That, that's a whole other story. I think Hawthorne's doing something here with the arrows for beauty, for love, for the lady, and the arrows for material and spiritual perfection. And when those two are merged in such a way that man is control, in control rather than God, uh, we see a kind of horror story develop. It's a horror story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she, she picks up on his obsession. Yeah. At one point she says, remove it. Remove it, whatever be the cost, or we shall both go mad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder, Jim, I don't know if this is, <laughs> you're the husband, I'm a wife, but um, before he's married, it doesn't seem to be an obsession, but after he's married and becomes the husband, somehow the imperfection of that which is his own, the wife, the reflection of his own renown, of his mm-hmm. own nobility, then becomes an obsession. At one point in a dream, he, he talks about removing it, and she reminds him of the dream and says, get rid of it. I'd rather die than be the object of repulsion for you. So she pushes him into it, and um, he, he tries to make it as pleasant an experience as he can. He changes a lab uh, drab room into a boudoir and fills it with this magical perfume and visions and spirits. So so you get a sense of the fairy tale aspect of this. But she, in looking at his records one day, unbeknownst to him, discovers that many of his experiments are failures <laughs> and that some of the experiments, uh, experiments, as you said a moment ago, seem to aspire to solving the problem of death itself. So this fatal flaw on her face comes to take on associations with the fall of man that results in the curse of death. And his ability or attempt at any rate to overcome that curse is similar in many ways to what happens in Paradise Lost or in Genesis. So we know it's not going to end well (laughs) in in this kind of assertion of uh, human hubris and in, in the story and the way it's mapped out. The wife, Georgiana, who whose name is associated with farming and the agrarian, it becomes just as culpable as he in being willing to risk everything for the sake of being freed from the humiliation of being seen as an imperfection in nature. Um, At the end, as she's dying, she'll look up to him, and as she moves from the uh, looking glass to her now perfect face, face to him, she will say, you solved the problem, but you lost the one thing in life that mattered most to you, me, because she dies. Yeah, I, at the beginning of the story, I thought to myself, well, we know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, but she says, my poor uh, Aylmer, murmured she, 
Poor, nay, richest, happiest, most favored, exclaimed he, my peerless bride. It is successful. You are perfect. And she says, my poor Aylmer, with more human tenderness, you have aimed loftily. You have done nobly. Do not repent that with so high and pure a feeling, you have rejected the best the earth could offer. Yeah. Aylmer, dearest Aylmer, I'm dying. Alas, it was too true. You know, high and pure feeling. Mm. He rejected the best earth could offer. Mm -hmm. These lofty desire to know, desire mm -hmm. to control. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he killed his beautiful, talented, charming, gracious mm -hmm. wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the parallel in, in the story, in this allegory of a science and its limitations, I would say, um, the parallel is um, actually to the Manichaean heresy that you are very familiar with as a theologian, Jim, because, you know, the material order is an affront to spiritual essence. And at one point in the story, this liminal figure, the lab assistant, who's ugly and humped over and shuffles around and who says, boy, I'd give anything to be married to her. Keep that perfection, that imperfection there. She's, she's perfect the way she is, right? So he, he seems to represent the earth quite literally, whereas Almer is spiritual essence. And the Manichaeans, as we know, you know wanted to uh, deny the integral nature of the spiritual and the material and shunned the material as evil. So um, I know behind this is uh, an aspiration of perfecting that which is already wrong with creation, that is the material order, and to do it through a kind of spiritual aspiration. Um, in the conference that we had on artificial intelligence and technology and so forth, I thought of Alan Tate's amazing essay, a set of essays, I should say, uh, one, the angelic imagination, the other, the symbolic imagination. And the symbolic imagination is willing to go through the senses, through the lowest thing, <laughs> through the earth, smell, taste, touch, sight, hearing, to aspire then to the spiritual truth through the Thomistic Aristotelian process of submission to the given in the created order. Whereas the angelic essence wants to just jump over that which is given in the material order and get at the essence of things as an angel does, right? But we're not angels. Um, and so we have a vivid story told by Tate. And I think Hawthorne very much participates in the symbolic imagination as he's giving us an image of an angelic one. But Tate, he talks about St. Catherine of Siena holding the head of a young man who had been her spiritual disciple as it's being cut off uh, by his executioners wrongly. And she holds his head and the blood spews forth from it and his neck all over her. And she says, I tasted the blood of Christ. So he uses that as a story of the symbolic imagination who sees through the things of the body, of the world, of the earth, um, that connection, that natural connection to the word which made 
all things, as St. John tells us, to Christ himself. Um, Leon Cass, one of the members, I think he was the head of the, wasn't he the head of Bush's Bioethics Bio, Committee? Bio, biotech. Bio, yeah, yeah, he was the chairman. Chairman of that committee. Collected a series of stories, and he put Hawthorne's birthmark in it in order, I think, to address this problem that science has in our own day of attempting those things which are better left alone <laughs> to the processes of nature, such as, in many cases, infertility, which is handled in a very unnatural way. Um, many cases, birthmarks, wrinkles, whatever is wrong with an already pretty face can be fixed now with plastic surgeons <laughs> to look, in my opinion, ghoulish and very odd and inappropriate to to many of the men and women who try it. So anyway, we could go on and on about how things are going in directions where scientists are not curbing their talent and who are going in directions where virtue does not lead. So this is one of those prescient stories from 1843 saying, stop, think about the beauty in the present rather than trying to capture the eternal. Aylmer appears to me to have fallen under the spell of what has been called the scientific imperative. If we have the technology to do it, we should do it, regardless of what it happens to be. Unintended consequences? Well, we'll worry about unintended consequences later, if at all. Hawthorne's story is a reminder that perhaps the scientific imperative is not all it's cracked up to be. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.